welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliotti, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 10, Ascending and Descending Spiritual Levels. Well, this evening we're discussing different spiritual levels in Isaiah and how they tie in with visions of glory, what Spencer sees in his near-death experiences, and also with the Doctrine and Covenants and other scriptures that talk about different spiritual levels. In Visions of Glory, Spencer says, all of the glorified universes I perceive were of three glories, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, which accords with LDS doctrine. There were other types which were not types of glory. These were wonderful places without glory, where beings were ultimately sent who had not qualified for a reward of glory during their lifetimes. That makes sense because there are different degrees of wickedness as there are different degrees of righteousness, so there's a place for everybody. And people are basically sent with their own kind, on their own spiritual level, which kind of makes for an interesting heaven or an interesting hell, doesn't it? These were of every type, of every description, and were created in response to their desires. They wanted nothing more to do with God or his intervention in their lives. So he gave them what they wanted, whatever it was, and there they would stay throughout eternity, unable to challenge God's authority ever again. Because that was what they were doing in life. From my book, Windows and the Prophets of Isaiah, which is just barely out, a quick summary. People depicted in the book of Isaiah are more than just characters who feature incidentally in ancient end-time events. They additionally typify spiritual categories that are discernible by how they relate to Israel's God. They thus inform us of who we are from God's perspective or what defines us. So we ourselves can check out where we are on this level, on this ladder of ascending levels, whether higher or lower, according to what defines a person's status on any particular level, high or low. From the same book, we have different synopses of the different levels. And this one's on perdition. The orchestrators of evil in the world who make up this lowest category of people retain no hope of returning to God's good graces. The path they choose in life crosses the line into pure wickedness, perfidy, and depravity. Their conscious deliberation to wreak chaos in the earth flies in the face of all they pretend to be, as likely few people perceive the depth of their commitment to evil. Seeking power and riches to the detriment of the rest of humanity, they routinely deceive and manipulate people, even as they murder and perpetrate the cruelest injustices in order to accomplish their self-serving ends. For such, there exists no hope of a resurrection, as beyond death their spirits decay away in unrelenting torment in the pit of dissolution until they cease to exist. And here we run into one of the precepts of man, that everybody is resurrected, not so to say the scriptures. The celestial group is resurrected at the end of the millennium, as we will see, and that is the last resurrection. There's no more beyond that for perdition types, which is a whole world removed from the celestial category. Visions of glory. I was shown the history of the spiritual and non-spiritual practices of the ancient Tahitians, I was shown that initially they were a very enlightened and spirit-filled people, even innocent and undefiled. They knew about Jesus Christ, his role and mission, which had come to them from holy men and women who had established their cultural heritage. Well, 
it doesn't take much to guess that this was the Nephite heritage that they inherited, that these were in fact Nephites who had migrated to the Polynesian Isles. I saw that their understanding deteriorated over the years as their founders died and those who believed became fewer in number. We've covered this before in one of the previous lectures where we saw that all of the Nephites apostatized basically except for a very few who did not deny Christ. And so what was going on in the American continent among them was also going on at the same time among their colonies. They sang to the most gross and graphic forms of human torture, debauchery, sexual perversions, and spiritual darkness imaginable. Among many other heinous things, they were sacrificing young virgins and killing infants and children in the most awful manner they could devise. As we discussed before, this is the ultimate form of apostasy. This is where it all goes in the end, if it continues and it doesn't get topped short. It was horrifying to me then and horrifying to me now because I saw it as it happened in great detail. They were doing this in part because of false religion and in part to avenge themselves of similar atrocities of their enemies. Their minds and hearts and everything they did was saturated by war, revenge, and lust for everything evil. I don't believe mortals could even think of such evil acts and then forge a society and tradition of such debauchery without the evil spirits urging them and instructing them in not just performing these acts, but in how to also religionize it over many years to make it become traditional and acceptable to their whole society. Well, guess what? We see this on the news every day. It's happening now in the ISIS or Islamic State. They're doing this very thing to people all in the name of religion. And that's where apostasy goes. From Isaiah 57, As for you, come here, you children of the sorceress, offspring of adulterer and harlot. At whose expense do you amuse yourselves? At whom do you open wide the mouth and stick out the tongue? Surely you are born of sin, a spurious brood, who burn with lust among the oaks, under every burgeoning tree, slayers of children of the gullies, under the crags of rocks. Again, we run into precepts of men here consistently because, according to some, you have to have the full knowledge of everything before you can become a son of perdition. Not so. It's spoken of that it would be better for some, for example, who violate children, never to have been born. Whenever you see that expression, it would be better never for them to have been born. It's identifying a perdition category. It doesn't mean that they never have the Holy Ghost, but before they committed their horrendous acts, they had lucidity enough to know good from evil. It's part of God's way of doing things, to let them know before they commit these things. You can have the Holy Ghost, of course, before baptism. This is what leads to a testimony of the gospel in the first place. DNC 76. Thus says the Lord concerning all those who know my power and have been made partakers thereof, and suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome, and to deny the truth and defy my power. Now the thing to remember about DNC when it's discussing the three degrees of glory celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, and perdition also. It's not that everything that is said there has to apply in any situation. But these are the descriptions of types of individuals that form a perdition category, or telestial, or terrestrial, or celestial category. It's a mistake to think that everything that it says has to apply in any given instance. Verse 32, they are they who are the sons of perdition of whom 
I say that it had been better for them never to have been born. So when you see that statement by Jesus or by others elsewhere, then you know it's defining a perdition category. It would have been better for them to have remained where they were without coming to this earth and doing the kinds of things, perpetrating those great evils that they end up doing. For they are vessels of wrath, wrath against God and against all that is good and true, because that's where it leads. It's not just a benign type of thing. People who go to that level, that lowest level, as it says here, they become vessels of wrath, doomed to suffer the wrath of God with the devil and his angels in eternity, concerning whom I have said there is no forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. So the atonement of Christ cannot touch them, cannot redeem them from evil. Having denied the Holy Spirit after having received it, and having denied, it doesn't say the gift of the Holy Ghost, you see. Having denied the Holy Spirit after having received it, and having denied the only begotten Son of the Father, having crucified him unto themselves, and put him to an open shame. These are they who shall go away into the lake of fire and brimstone with the devil and his angels, and the only ones on whom the second death shall have any power. So, in other words, their spirits die also. Their spirits are recycled. That's called the second death. Their spirits actually die eventually after they go through the torment, constituting the punishment for their wickedness. The only ones who shall not be redeemed in the due time of the Lord after the sufferings of his wrath. Because that defines celestial people who suffer his wrath, but are in the end redeemed, or can be. For all the rest shall be brought forth by the resurrection of the dead. That is, except them. They are not brought forth in the resurrection of the dead. It says it right here. Though through the triumph and glory of the Lamb who was slain, who was in the bosom of the Father before the worlds were made. It says, for all the rest shall be brought forth by the resurrection, but not them. This is Isaiah 26, where Isaiah says this also. O Jehovah our God, lords other than you have ruled over us, that is, wicked rulers, perdition types. But you alone recall by name. They are dead to live no more, spirits who will not resurrect. You appoint them to destruction, wiping out all recollection of them. They're gone. DNC 76. Again. And he saves all the works of his hands except those sons of perdition who deny the Son after the Father has revealed him. Here's another precept of men that we run into because. There are those who believe that, as the scripture says, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. But again, the word every has to be qualified. All except under perdition, because they will not do that. And the Lord gives them free choice to do whatever they want. And he honors their choices. So, if they don't do that, they will not be redeemed. And they are not. Wherefore he saves all except them, they shall go away into everlasting punishment, which is endless punishment, which is eternal punishment to reign with the devil and his angels in eternity, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched, which is their torment. Now, endless punishment is God's punishment, as we learn from other scriptures. So, does that mean they're always going to be there? No. Isaiah says that at the very end of his book also, it's the fire that is not quenched. The fire is always going to be there, but eventually when their spirits are dissolved, and burnt up in that fire, they cease to exist. 
and the end thereof, neither the place thereof, nor the torment, nor their torment, no man knows. Neither was it revealed, neither is, neither will it be revealed unto man, except to them who are made partakers thereof. Well, that makes sense because you can never feel what they feel because of all the ramifications of what they did. You may be given a view of the place, and some have that I know, so, but that doesn't mean you'd still know the whole story of, and feel everything that they felt or can feel. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, showed by vision unto many, but straightway shut it up again. Wherefore, the end, the widths, the heights, the depth, and the misery thereof, they understand not, neither any man except those who are ordained unto this condemnation. And we heard the voice saying, Write the vision, for lo, this is the end of the vision of the suffering of the ungodly. Isaiah 30. Tophet has been prepared of old, a hearth indeed made ready for rulers, or kings, evil rulers. Broad and deep is its fire pit, and ample its pyre. Jehovah's breath burns within it like a river of lava. I would not wish that on anybody, but the Lord cannot deny his justice when they refuse his mercy. Here it is, Isaiah 66. As the new heavens and the new earth which I make shall endure before me, says Jehovah, so shall your offspring and name endure. This is speaking of the elect. And new moon after new moon, Sabbath after Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says Jehovah. And they shall go out and look upon the corpses of the people who transgressed against me, whose worms do not die and whose fire shall not be extinguished. They shall be a horror to all flesh. So this is not the Catholic concept of burning throughout all eternity in hell. It just it doesn't say that. It says fire doesn't die. The worms are still there. They don't die. But it's showing you here the contrast of favorite Isaiah between the righteous and the wicked, between the elect, those who are exalted, and those who are decreated and enter into a decreated state or become in the end non-entities who were the ones who opposed the righteous and God's elect, in fact, who helped them to rise to the elect level, to the level of translated beings, by the opposition that they provided. So both are necessary. In Isaiah, the next lowest category is Babylon, and the one above that is Jacob or Israel. We've discussed these before, but this is in the context of a ladder to heaven. Windows on the Prophet of Isaiah. Taking their name from ancient Babylon, we'll discuss Babylon first, the inveterate idolaters and oppressors of humanity in this category labor in a state of moral turpitude without making the effort to pull themselves out of their spiritual morass. Having bought into this world's standard of values, they evidence little awareness of a higher reality that includes a divine creator and redeemer. Like the perdition category, they are in a process of decreation as by their own choices they commit to living a less than human ethic in which they deceive themselves and their own kind. Among their estranged ranks are those who worship God, but who, when faced with the defining moment that tests their loyalties, yield to pride, take offense, and repudiate others' attempts to save their souls. Now we see this in the New Testament. When the Lord comes on the scene and his apostles, there are those who try to kill them, and they're murderers. And they had light and they fall from grace, and end up as perdition types. And this is why you see imagery describing them as less than human, such as dogs and beasts, wild beasts, and so forth. Because they're no longer what they used to be, and they're no longer in a purely human category. Visions of glory. 
he saw there were many people tightly packed on a dance floor, dancing closely, drinking and smoking. I could hear their thoughts, which were a continual stream of obscenities, rationalizations of sexual lusts. Much of their thinking was much more violent, violent than how they acted. They looked like normal young people on a dance floor. If they could have heard each other's thoughts, there would have been no restraint at all, but an ensuing scene of bestial acts. There you go. The bestial imagery is what people become when they yield to these lower impulses. Visions of glory again. I saw that people who had already been entrapped by the evil spirits could hardly hear their own thoughts. The voice of the evil ones had become even more powerful than their own mind. They would do anything their evil controllers said, even while thinking it was their own idea or their own wishes that they were fulfilling. Once these evil spirits had total control, they then desired that the mortals should quickly depart mortality so that their possession became permanent they thereafter urged them to risky behavior, acts of violence, and even suicide to hasten the day of their moral death. I think this helps explain why sometimes people just on impulse seem to be going crazy and killing children with guns in schools and what have you. Well, there's a backstory to that, of course, that they had already been yielding to the evil spirits, and this time to such a degree that the next step is to resort to murder following the evil spirit's impulses. Just as the Holy Ghost is ministered by the righteous spirits from on high, as we read in DNC 76 in an earlier lecture, so the evil spirit is ministered by the evil spirits. Isaiah 14. I will rise up against them, says Jehovah of hosts. This is the Hebrew of the Lord of hosts, which you're familiar with, but when it says the Lord in Hebrew, it's Jehovah. So Jehovah of hosts may not be that familiar as an expression, but that is what the Hebrew says. I will cut off Babylon's name and remnant, its offspring and descendants, says Jehovah. I will turn it into swamplands, a haunt for ravens, comparing again these people to birds of prey. I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, says Jehovah of hosts. Kind of like the time of the Jaredites, when uh, the earth was swept, shiz, he sweeps the earth before him and destroys everything in his path. So the Lord raises up his people's enemies to do the same kind of destruction in the end time. These people have no lineage left to them. They have no posterity. They have no ancestors they can claim. Root and branch are cut off. And Babylon, the most splendid of kingdoms, the glory and pride of Chaldeans, shall be thrown down as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. While well, we discuss Sodom and Gomorrah, last time and showed that the Lord's own people are going to descend to that spiritual level and eventually meet the same fate. Now the Jacob Israel level. Both the Babylon and Jacob Israel level are part of a celestial glory. They are still redeemable through Christ's atonement if they will repent in the end, even if it takes a thousand years being out of the body. People with whom Israel's God establishes a covenant relationship, but who renege on their commitment to falter in living by his precepts, make up a large initial category of Isaiah's seven spiritual levels. It's kind of a pivotal point where you go either up or down. It's a level in which many people come to earth, is the Jacob Israel level. Preoccupied by worldly pursuits within the materialistic Babylonian culture into which they subscribe, they suffer from intellectual torpor and spiritual blindness that result from an infatuation with idols, the works of men's hands. They need waking up 
to the imminent judgments of God hanging over the world that will surely overtake them unless they renew their covenant relationship with them, repent of their waywardness, and return wholeheartedly to their God. Only on those conditions can they participate in his salvation, temporal and spiritual. So they may be resurrected because of the atonement of Christ, which covers all those except going to partition, as we just saw in the scriptures. But they will inherit a kingdom of glory, but the lowest, still a kingdom of damnation. It's a resurrection of damnation because they're never redeemed from their sins until they repent of them. Christians of glory. The scene changed again to several rapid views of mortals seeking various entertainments. Now these ones are not as graphic as the ones he's just been describing. This is another category, and it's nuanced to agree with, basically with Isaiah's Jacob Israel category, not the Babylon category. I saw inside movie theaters and in homes where people were watching TV. I saw glimpses of amusement parks, casinos, and large sport events. I saw people listening to music from stereos and earphones. I saw people laughing at parties and endlessly hanging out with their friends. I thought these were everyday things of no spiritual significance. Why are you showing me these things? Because so much of this is accepted in our LDS culture, right? People think nothing of it. It's like the LDS culture never calls you on this. In fact, if it starts with a prayer, it seems to be okay, right? I asked, what is the significance? He replied that these were all the ways that people unknowingly move themselves away from the Spirit of the Lord. I realized that in each of these scenes that the good angels were absent or pushed away some distance. They're not totally gone, like with the Babylon perdition categories, at least with the perdition category, possibly not with the Babylon category either, but they're certainly pushed further with the Babylon category than these people on this Jacob Israel level. The people in these scenes were so involved in the entertainment that they weren't listening to the Holy Spirit. They weren't doing something evil, but they were not listening to God, which was what the evil spirits labored so hard to accomplish in others, yet these were willingly isolating themselves. I saw also that evil spirits were urging them to view more and more violent or sexual content. Because it's a lead-in, it's to the Babylon category, and from there to the perdition category, of course. They were urging people listening to the music to become enthralled, to dance and shake and gyrate. I call that a form of worship. You know, you see in Jews praying, you know, with their bodies. Well, I think when they're gyrating into the music, I think that's worshiping in the other direction. It's the opposite of worshiping God. To feel sexual or physical highs, to focus on their bodies of physical beauty, anything except God. So whatever is a distraction from him is a form of worshiping false gods, worshiping other gods. And you have to see these forms of entertainment or whatever attracts them as false gods. And he said, you shall have no false gods before me. I saw people obsessed with eating, with not eating, with dieting, with acting, dancing, performing, fashion, beauty, sports, dating, or school, none of which was inherently evil. They were just so focused upon these things that the voice of the Holy Spirit as I saw being delivered by the good angels, was pushed far away. Well, their religion was a Sunday religion, possibly, if then. Isaiah 43. So this is what defines the Jacob Israel category. In Isaiah, you do not call upon me, O Jacob, you grown weary of me, O Israel. They're not thinking of him, not centering their lives around him. They're not watching and praying always, lest they enter into temptation. 40 again, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak thus, O Israel, 
Our path has become obscured from Jehovah. Our cause is overlooked by our God. Oh, he's forgotten about us. Excuse me? You've forgotten him. That's why he's forgotten you. You're not in his good grace, so how can you feel his Holy Spirit? How can he manifest himself to you when you're not, most of the time not even thinking about him? It takes effort and paying a price for those manifestations to happen, as we saw in our last lecture. 42. Who is it that hands Jacob over to plunder and Israel to the spoilers, if not Jehovah, against whom we have sinned? Or they have no desire to walk in his ways or obey his law? They're still basically a law unto themselves, aren't they? By allowing themselves to be distracted with whatever meets their fancy. So in the heat of his anger, he pours out on them the violence of war till it envelops them in flames, yet they remain unaware till it sets them on fire, yet they take it not to heart. Remember, Isaiah is an end-time scenario, so he's spelling out what will happen to celestial people, even the Jacob Israel category, in his end-time scenario. Of course, worse happens to the more evil types, but even all celestial types go through this, because who survives into the millennium? Only terrestrial and celestial people. DNC 76, Joseph Smith. We saw the glory of the telestial, which glory is that of the lesser, even as the glory of the stars differs from what of the glory of the moon in the firmament. These are they who received not the gospel of Christ, neither the testimony of Jesus. Well, they knew about it. They could easily have known about it. But what does the word receive really mean? It means to receive it with your whole soul, right? To worship God with all your might, mind, and strength. Because that's what it's going to take. Not just part of your mind, part of your heart, part of your strength. So the, the word receive is a loaded word. Receive the Holy Ghost when you're confirmed. After baptism, you have to be in the act of receiving. It's an active verb. These are they who deny not the Holy Spirit, like the perdition types. These are they who are thrust down to hell. These are they who shall not be redeemed from the devil until the last resurrection. That is, theirs is the last. The telastal is the last resurrection. Until the Lord, even Christ the Lamb, shall have finished his work. These are they who receive not of his fullness in the eternal world, but of the Holy Spirit through the ministration of the terrestrial, and the terrestrial through the ministration of the celestial, and also the telestial, Telestial receive it, that is the Holy Spirit, or the ministration of the Holy Spirit, of the ministering of angels who are appointed to minister for them, or who are appointed to be ministering spirits for them. So the Holy Ghost is not this great euphoric spirit that's everywhere all at once. It's ministered by these angels from the celestial through the terrestrial to us in the telestial. And the glory of the telestial is one, even as the glory of the stars is one, for as one star differs from another star in glory, even so differs one from another in glory in the telestial world. Well, that is what Spencer sees. There are different degrees within these degrees of glory, within the telestial, terrestrial, and celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. There are different categories of people within them. For these are they who are of Paul and of Apollos and of Cephas. Well, in the previous lecture, we also added these are they who say, I'm of Moses, or of Monson, or of Packer, or of McConkie, right? It's not disparaging of these brethren, but it's saying, it's not disparaging of Paul or Moses or anybody, but this is their mode of operation. They are quite willing just to stay with following the prophet, and that's it. And we compare them and contrast it with those who ascended the mount and saw God 
in our previous lecture. And some of Elias and some of Isaiah and some of Isaiah and some of Enoch. In other words, they focus on certain heroes that they have and they give them that kind of adulation that should be given to, to the Lord, to Christ. And that we saw that in our previous lecture. But perceive not the gospel, that is not in its fullness, neither the testimony of Jesus, neither the prophets, neither the everlasting covenant. Last of all, because it takes work to enter into a covenant relationship and to maintain it. Last of all, these are they who will not be gathered with the saints or holy ones or sanctified ones to be caught up unto the church of the firstborn, that is the elect, just men made perfect, and received into the cloud when Jesus comes. These are they who are liars and sorcerers and adulterers and whoremongers and whoever loves and makes a lie. These are they who suffer the wrath of God on earth. These are they who suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. These are they who, shall, who are cast down to hell and suffer the wrath of Almighty God until the fullness of times when Christ shall have subdued all his enemies under his feet and shall have perfected his work. Now both of these, uh, Babylon and the Jacob-Israel category, which itself divides into, as we've discussed previously, are part of the Telestial Kingdom. But because of the different levels within the Telestial Kingdom, these different people are accommodated there. As it says in the scripture we just read about the stars being a different brightness from our point of view on the earth, that is. Now the Zion Jerusalem category from Isaiah, one of Isaiah's seven spiritual categories that he identifies by people who exemplify these things, these categories, by their actions, by, their how, by how they relate to God. People who repent of transgression and keep the law and word of Israel's God, the terms of his covenant, qualify to ascend spiritually from the Jacob Israel category to Zion Jerusalem. After experiencing a descent phase, a time of trial in which God tests their loyalties, they receive a remission of their sins and the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, of His Holy Spirit. Committed to loving God and neighbor, they are recreated or reborn on the first ascending spiritual level. With it, they receive a new name and a divine commission to minister to God's children who have yet to ascend. As they fulfill their stewardships, God pours out on them the blessings of His covenant. Empowered by His Holy Spirit, their lives assume a sacred purpose characterized by love and joy. Now you can see this is a whole different feeling here than just the Telaster or the Jacob Israel category, which is content to just, yeah, to know about things kind of, but not to fully embrace the laws of Christ, or the laws of the gospel, or the atonement but through which they can receive a remission of their sins, and the law of repentance and faith in Christ, and baptism and so forth, for the remission of sins, and then to retain a remission of sins. BNC 76 again. We saw the terrestrial world, which is the Zion Jerusalem category in Isaiah. And behold and lo, these are they who are of the terrestrial, whose glory differs from that of the church of the firstborn, who have received the fullness of the Father, even that of the moon, as the moon differs from the sun in the firmament. The church of the firstborn being the celestial category. Behold, these are they who died without law, and also they who are the spirits of men kept in prison, whom the Son visited and preached the gospel unto them, that they might be judged according to men of the flesh. Who received not the testimony of Jesus in the flesh, but afterwards received it. Yes, but that's not solely identifying the terrestrial category. As I said, it's the kind of things that identifies a terrestrial category. 
These are they who are the honorable men of the earth who are blinded by the craftiness of men. In other words, these are not the elect. Of the elect, Jesus said, if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. And these people are being deceived still by the craftiness of men. So these are not the elect. These are they who receive of his glory, but not of his fullness. These are they who receive of the presence of the Son, but not of the fullness of the Father. So in the Telestial, the Holy Ghost ministers, in the Terrestrial, the Son, and in the Celestial, the Father. Wherefore they are bodies terrestrial and not bodies celestial, and different glory as the moon differs from the sun, these are they who are not valiant in the testament of Jesus. That is what defines the celestial category. It's being valiant in the testament of Jesus and becoming sanctified. And these are not becoming sanctified. They are saved. They attain a saved state, a justified state, through the atonement of Christ, but not an exalted state. Wherefore they obtain not the crown over the kingdom of our God. That is a great pity because... There is a crown for this lifetime. And as Paul warns, let no man take your crown. Let nothing take your crown from you. It's there. It's waiting for you. Do everything you can to obtain it. So the terrestrial do not obtain it until they become celestial. Visions of glory. There were millions to whom we did not minister because the translated beings were sent to the elect, specifically to the elect. So it's like Jesus said, he was sent to the house of Israel. And he answered the Samaritan woman and asked for his help. He said, I can't help you. I'm sent to the house of Israel, not to others. And then she was able to nevertheless enlist his help by her faith in him. There were millions to whom we did not minister who were yet worthy to escape the cleansing of his coming, or the fire of his cleansing of his coming. But without the protection of Zion, they struggled tragically until he came. So they didn't go in the exodus to Zion or to stakes of Zion in the end time scene. They were left out there to deal with all the horrible things that are coming upon the earth. The Lord will protect them, not directly, however, but indirectly. They still would have to wade their way through all of the horror of those times and through that process become clean and purified to become his elect. And in the end, no doubt, many do through those experiences that they would have. And even the elect themselves need to go through experiences on the journey. They may not have been the elect immediately because it says of the 144,000 that their job is to bring as many as they can to the church of the firstborn. And part of that is through the journeys that they undertook, during which they were taught and schooled in what constitutes the law of the gospel in its fullness. But the Lord, nevertheless, sent the translated beings to them, knowing that it would not take very much to bring them up to that elect level. Isaiah 30. Then will Jehovah delay his coming, that he may favor you. Out of mercy toward you, he will remain aloof. Well, that is to everybody across the board, because the elect too, and translated beings, all are going to experience this being, as it were, cut off from his presence at some part during their experiences so they can learn how to turn to him and rely solely upon him and not upon the things of the world, or not upon what might bring them to his blessings. For Jehovah is the God of justice, blessed are all who wait for him. What does it mean that Jehovah is the God of justice and blessed are all who wait for him? Justice for whom? Well, justice for the wicked, correct? Mercy for the elect, mercy for the righteous. And so he lets the wicked do their thing so that the righteous can deal with that opposition and rise above it. 
and so that the wicked may also fulfill the measure of their wickedness because the Lord will allow them to continue so they can be condemned while the elect are exalted. And that's all the way through the book of Isaiah, the contrast between the one and the other. So it's a mercy for him to wait and not manifest himself right away to you if you're going through hard times. But if you learn how to bless the Lord in those situations, bless his name, and thank him for the opposition, thank him for the hardships and for these trials and horrible experiences, if you take ownership of your descent phase and of the covenant curses of iniquities of generations that you have inherited, you discuss this, then it's going to have the desired effect of exalting you. He himself passed through that. He knows all about it. He's in every detail of it in your life as well. O people of Zion, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, you shall have no cause to weep. He will graciously respond at the cry of your voice. He will answer you as soon as he hears it. When that time comes of the reversal of circumstances between the righteous and the wicked, and the wicked who exalt themselves now are humiliated, and those who are humbled now are exalted, then when you see it on a perspective and what the Lord did for you by leading you through it, you would not want to have changed any part of it. You'll thank him. You'll be glad that you went through it because it's an amazing opportunity. It doesn't come around very often, right? So embrace it now while you can. And then you'll say, well, nothing major is happening to me. What are you talking about? Well, if nothing major has happened to you to provide opposition to you, maybe because your commitment could be deepened, could be greater, and could come from, from your whole soul. And then the Lord will take you through it. I assure you, He will. It's what He does. And He will also lead you through it. O people of Zion, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is Zion Jerusalem category, you shall have no cause to weep. He will graciously respond to the cry of your voice. He will answer you as soon as he hears that. So there comes a point when he is there for you constantly, answering you even in the moment, after your circumstances have been reversed. Though my Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall your teacher remain hidden no longer, but your eyes shall see the Master. That is, face to face. He will no longer withhold himself from you. Sons, servants, and seraph saviors. These are all a celestial category, but again, different degrees within the celestial kingdom. From Windows in the Prophecy of Isaiah. Ascending from the Zion Jerusalem category are valiant souls who sanctify their lives by emulating Israel's Savior God and assimilating His attributes and perfections. Entering into individual compacts with Him under the terms of the Davidic covenant, they act as proxy saviors of others in the pattern of King Hezekiah at Assyria's siege of Jerusalem. Proving loyal to Israel's God through a descent phase of trials and afflictions, they are recreated in His image and likeness and inherit lands and posterities by an unconditional covenant. Now, in the terrestrial glory, there were blessings from keeping the terms of the covenant, but they were conditional still. They don't become unconditional, in other words, forever after, generation to generation, until the Father makes his oath and covenant with them to that degree. The oath and covenant of the priesthood is not something we make, it's what the Father makes in the pattern of emperors in the ancient Near Eastern emperor vassal covenants who made covenants unconditional after a vassal king had proven loyal to the emperor under all conditions. So after he's tested, after he's gone through his descent phases, then the Father makes this covenant with you, his vassal, his son or servant, 
and makes the covenant with you unconditional. For terrestrial people, it's still conditional, and telestial people. These serve as kings and queens to others of God's people in bringing them into a covenant relationship with him, laying the groundwork for the transformation of the earth when Jehovah comes to establish his reign of peace. So you notice as we go up the spiritual ladder, you are given a commission to minister to levels below you. The Zion-Jerusalem category, once you ascend to that level, as the people of Hezekiah did, they're immediately given a commission to minister to the Jacob-Israel category. And people on the servant category are given a commission to minister to the terrestrial category, or the Jacob-Israel category, because they now are on a celestial level. So on earth, they follow the pattern of what's happening in the spiritual realm, where those people or those angels from a celestial category ministering to the terrestrial, from the terrestrial to the telestial. So we follow the same pattern on the earth. We're given a commission to do this. Our home teaching is part of this. The level of our home teaching varies considerably, right? Some may be home teaching on a terrestrial level, and others, in fact, home teaching on a celestial level. Think about that. They serve as kings and queens to others, because on a celestial level, you are male and female. From then on, it's male and female, and it's a permanent covenant relationship. It's part of your covenant relationship with God is the male and female relationship, the relationship you have with your spouse. And this is the kind of thing that prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. When the establishment of these relationships and this living the fullness of the gospel gets into gear, that is the hastening of the work in Isaiah. Then the house of Israel is restored as a result of people attaining this level of kings and queens. Their attention turns to the house of Israel, because that is to whom they minister at that point in time, in the end time scenario, when the rest of the people apostatize, as we've discussed previously. Visions of glory. Those whom we found ready to join us, the very elect of God, had submitted to this purifying process already during the process of their lives. Now he makes a distinction between those elect, or those almost elect, who have to walk through the journey, and through that journey attain elect level, and those who are already elect, who are pure every whit, cleansed from their iniquities. And these, he says, they brought through the portals directly. Had submitted to the purifying process already during the process of their lives, and we brought them to Zion singing songs of everlasting joy. These pure hearts were the ones of whom Isaiah proclaimed would bring back on their shoulders into Zion, singing songs of everlasting joy. Yes, in the journeys of the elect, the literal physical journeys, metaphorically they were also bringing them on their shoulders and carrying them in their arms. And children certainly, literally, in many cases. But literally, through the portals, yes, holding their hands and bringing them through. That's simple. Isaiah 30, For you there shall be singing, this is for the elect, as on the night when a festival commences. The previous verse is comparing this scenario with the wicked who are being punished for their crimes. Again, drawing the contrast, as Isaiah always does, between the wicked and the righteous. And rejoicing of heart is when march with flutes and drums and lyres on their way to the mountain of Jehovah, to the rock of Israel. Now sometimes you'll see parentheses, and in my published translation I show with footnotes why that's there. And sometimes, as I've mentioned before, a scribe writing down from memory would forget a word or two and put it in later and I plug it back in where it belongs, take it out of the place where it's out of context and plug it in and I make a footnote about it and here's an instance of that. Isaiah 51. 
was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the mighty deep? This is the Lord speaking to his arm of righteousness. To the arm of the Lord that's going to be revealed, as it says in Isaiah 52, and it's going to be empowered as it is here, this chapter, which is in the previous verses. And then he says to him, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the mighty deep, and made up ocean depths a way by which the redeemed might pass? Let the ransom of the Lord return, let them come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy, let them obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing flee away. And this is what Spencer was talking about a moment ago. So when the servant comes on the scene, and the 144,000 are sealed with the Father's name on their foreheads by the angel from the east, and the four angels who hold the four winds, and holding destruction from happening until that is done, the angel from the east being the servant in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 2, who comes from the east, chapter 46 also, then the whole end-time scenario of the restoration of the house of Israel is set in motion. And these things start happening domino fashion, like falling dominoes, all happening at once. The time is speeded up. Visions of glory. Millennial souls were assigned to this earth. They had work to do here. They bore and raised children here and labored to change the entire world into Zion. These were the people of the promise, those who had inherited the earth, those whose children grew up without sin unto salvation, as scriptures say. So what is the difference between them and the translated beings? Translated beings have a work to do to bring the elect to Zion, but these millennial souls are the elect. So what happens to them during the millennial age? They inherit the earth, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And thus we saw the glory of the celestial excels in all things, where God, even the Father, reigns upon his throne forever and ever, before whose throne all things bow in humble reverence, and give him glory forever and ever. They who dwell in his presence are the church of the firstborn, for they shall see as they are seen, and know as they are known, having received of his fullness, and of his grace, and he makes them equal in power, and in might, and in dominion. So they attain a level that's more or less equal, unlike the people in the Telestral Kingdom who are all different kinds of spiritual levels and, and below that according to their degree of wickedness. DNC 76, again. These are they into whose hands the Father has given all things. They inherit all things, in other words. They are they who are priests and kings, who have received of his glory, of his fullness and of his glory. Well, priests and kings and also priestesses and queens, of course, and are priests of the Most High, after the order of Melchizedek, which is after the order of Enoch, which is after the order of the Only Begotten Son. Wherefore, as it is written, they are gods, even the sons of God. Now, these are people on the translated level who become gods at that point, and they are after the order of Enoch. Wherefore, all things are theirs, whether in life or in death, or things present or things to come, all are theirs, and there are Christ, and Christ is God's. And they shall overcome all things, wherefore let no man glory in man, but rather let him glory in God, who shall subdue all enemies under his feet. These shall dwell in the presence of God and his Christ forever and ever. These are they of whom he shall bring with him, and he shall come in the clouds of heaven to reign on the earth over his people. Now it's so easy to assume that because we're members of the church, we think of these things, we've read it so often, we think of ourselves as celestial people. But think about it. 
I mean, have you received the remission of your sins? Have you retained the remission of your sins? Have you seen Christ, seen the Lord? Have you had the ministering of angels? Have you made personal covenants with him besides the ones already made? The temple and elsewhere uh, come to baptism? Have you paid the ultimate price? Have you, like Abraham, offered your life on that altar? Have you given up all things dear to you? As Abraham offered Isaac and Pharaoh took his wife and he gave her up. and So his life, his wife, and his only begotten son. Have you gone through these motions? Have you read Lecture 6 of Lectures on Faith? Have you sacrificed all things as these people have done? Then maybe we should give this another thought. Maybe we're not there yet. We may not be far from it, but maybe then you want to renew you know, your commitment to offer your whole life to God, and like Spencer did in his book. And he saw what would be required, the suffering and the descent he needed to go through, the afflictions he would have to wade through and experience some horrible things and be willing to do so then, and since the Lord is no respecter of persons, then we, we may indeed qualify for this glory, this wonderful glory that he's holding out to us. These are they who shall have part in the first resurrection. These are they who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. They are just men made perfect. That is perfect on that level, because perfection is relative, as we've discussed in previous lectures. These are they who are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly place, the holiest of all. These are they who have come to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of Enoch, of the firstborn. These are they whose names are written in heaven, where God and Christ are the judge of all. These are they who are just men made perfect through the Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who wrought out this perfect atonement through the shedding of his own blood. These are they whose bodies are celestial, whose glory is that of the sun, even the glory of God, the highest of all, whose glory the sun of the firmament is written of as being typical. While you have the sun, the moon, and the stars, of course, as being typical of the celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, but what other bodies do you have out there? Comets and meteors and other, you know, chaotic bodies that are also types and shadows of perdition types and telestial types or Babylon types. Their lives are chaotic and they're going to cause damage from time to time. Windows in the Prophecy of Isaiah, Seraph Saviors, comprising the highest spiritual category to which one may ascend on this earth, seraphs compare with translated beings such as Enoch, Moses, and Elijah, who exercise divine powers. Their mission spans heaven and earth and extends to all nations. Now, where do you get this in Isaiah, by the way? You get it in the seraphs in chapter 6, but in Isaiah's literary structure, in Isaiah's seven-part structure, he shows you how he graduates from elect status in chapter 6 to seraph status in chapter 40. And he is, begins to assume the role of seraphs that are described in chapter 6, now ministering to God's people Israel. So he himself shows you the pattern of how that happens. And of course, in the Book of Mormon, in the New Testament, we also have examples of the three Nephites, John the Revelator, of Nephi the son of Helaman, of Alma the Younger, and what they went through and Elijah went through, the Old Testament and Enoch, to gain translated status. So if you have high opinions of yourselves and think of yourself, well, I could be translated someday, and well, yes, you could, but think of what they went through to attain that. 
And the Lord is very well willing to have you, one of his translated beings, if you're willing to pay the price with him and suffer with him, as Paul says, to attain the glory that he has. Indeed, the three Nephites did that. We don't know their backstory, but Jesus said of them that they would inherit the kingdom of the Father, as distinct from the nine, and that their joy would be full as his joy was full, and that they would be even as he is, and he was even as the Father. While he did not become even as the Father until he had atoned for this world's transgressions. So go figure that one. You know, there's a lot hidden in these scriptures that you have to read between the lines. Their mission spans heaven and earth and extends to all nations. Unlike the other celestial category of the sons and servants whose missions are local, or as in Isaiah's case, or in Hezekiah's case, to his own people. It was national, it was not international. That's why the 144,000 are of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and their mission is to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, as exemplified by John the Revelator, who is not the servant, contrary to what some persons believe, who have little knowledge of what the scriptures say. Isaiah's is an end-time scenario, like persons on the son's servant level for whom they ascend, they serve as kings and queens, restoring God's people to promised lands before Israel's God, Jehovah, comes to reign on the earth. Unlike the mission of God's sons and servants, however, which is local, theirs is worldwide. Their role as proxy savers under the terms of the Davidic covenant involves an intense descent phase through trials and afflictions, followed by a glorious ascent. Well, I would say the best Backstory of that is Spencer himself in his book. Best backstory of becoming a translated being that I know of, but it agrees with that of other translated beings you see in the scriptures, is that of Spencer. Isaiah 49. Thus is my Lord Jehovah. I will lift up my hand to the nations, raise my ensign to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosoms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers. Well, those are both the son-servant category, and translated beings, because all the elect and above are ministering to lower levels and bringing others to the gospel, to the fullness of the gospel that they have embraced. So let's wait there a couple of minutes. We'll come back and after the break. On visions of glory. From then on, we went to those we were to bless. We could see the whole process of their lives. I had enjoyed this gift a few times while out of the body, but never as a mortal. Now it was with us continually. Being able to completely understand people like that is a gift that comes with being translated, and which grows more powerful with experience and further blessings. It took us many years to understand and implement this gift. That was a little surprising to me that you actually have to grow into using the gifts. Well, he did say that the people of Enoch City, whom we met in the New Jerusalem, they were very experienced in using their gifts. And it's part of Godhood, I guess, to minister on that high level and see completely into their souls as Jesus could when he was on the earth and he could read people's thoughts. He could disappear, make himself disappear if he wanted to. Many things that Spencer describes that agree with other parts of the scriptures that we can't cover in these lessons. Translated people did not have children and they were not earthbound. So unlike the people, the elect, who inherit the earth unconditionally, 
their labors were for a specific purpose, the building of Zion and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Of course, Zion can extend beyond this earth, the kingdom of God also. Sometimes their work included other places, even other planets and people. When their ministry was accomplished and their time was over, they prayed to God and entered their translated ministry. They were instantly resurrected and joined with other such beings in the service of God. The eternal difference was that to be translated was a greater gift than any other course and true mortality. Their joy was greater because of their long service to God. Their rewards were the greatest immortal man joy. And that is the end of this session. So, spend the rest of the time answering questions. Because I'm sure you have questions. And will not bar any questions you may have if it's pertaining somewhat to the topic. Yes. It's a common impression, yeah, your question is about the keys of dissolution of the second death. The seeds of the second death, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a lengthy question, so I don't know if I... I, I tend to get a little hypoglycemic, as you can probably tell sometimes, but, but I'll try to cover the area that you were asking about. If you go on YouTube and look at many near-death experiences, you see that people go there and see these perdition types, and they can see them in their, in their horror. And it is their spirits who are there, not their bodies. And as we've just read in, in two places, that all the rest come forth in the resurrection, but not perdition types. In Isaiah 38, King Hezekiah, in his regurgitating what happened when he was, fell deathly ill, which was part of his descent phase, he is talking about escaping the idea of the pit of dissolution pit of dissolution being where spirits go and never come back. And not if they go there in their, in their bodies, but in their spirits. Just like the near-death experiences show. I don't know about keys of, of these things. Keys of the... Of, oh, excuse me, I misunderstood that. Yeah, the seeds. Well, seeds is a, is a loaded word. Seeds of second death. It starts when you start making small evil choices or bad choices, right? And progresses from there. It's possible, as Spencer sees, that some come to this earth already, already evil. I know of no scripture that says that some that are, except those who, uh, well, I would draw a distinction between different types of pre-mortal spirits as well. And you see that in the book of Abraham, where some are like unto God, and some are great and noble souls, it calls them, and other spirits and intelligences. And some come to this earth with a propensity to, to do evil, inordinately so. So you wonder, who are they, you know? And Spencer sees these. And so the seeds of it, however, I would say always start somewhere with transgression, with pride usually, as pride is the big one. That was Satan's big sin, the pride of the Nephites. And progresses, or rather regresses from there. And in Isaiah, it's, it's a process of regression accompanied by decreation, just as the process of progression is accompanied by recreation, recreation closer and closer to God's image and likeness. And I always ask the question, well, if you're already in God's image and likeness now, which only says of Adam and of Brother Jared in the scriptures, then why would Paul say that our quest is to become recreated in his image, to gain the image of Christ? So just as you have progression and recreation on every spiritual level, you're reborn to that level, then you're reborn to that level, and given a new name. And that's why you have the different names in the book of Isaiah, Jacob, Israel, Zion, Jerusalem. And then likewise with decreation, 
you can't see what you used to be. It's gone from you. You kind of guess it, but no, you're denying it now. You see people who deny everything about the gospel, whatever they once knew, they can't even believe now. And they really can't. So it's a slippery slope down to perdition. And it's easy to fall into it if you give, you know, into the natural man. Was there something else? It takes it being of the higher order to bring us out of this closed system we're in, is what you're saying. Yes. 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 I'll repeat that. Proxy savers who are doing for somebody something they can't do for themselves. Well, it's also how we grow, right? It's how we grow into godhood, so to speak, progressively. Kingdom hopping on whatever level they're at. Yeah. But kingdom hopping, I would say, no, there are no shortcuts. That's what the king of Assyria tries or the son of perdition tries to take the shortcut. So you have to go through the, through the paradigm that the Lord himself establishes. And that is, to attain his father's glory, he goes through this horrendous descent phase of, of atoning for a world's transgressions. That is the law that he is keeping on his level. He was perfect before he came here, but not perfect on the Father's level. That's why it says in Luke, he does miracles today and casts out devils, and the third day he will be perfected. That's not resurrected. The third day he's perfected through the atonement. As you can tell when he says to the Nephites, be you therefore perfect as I and your Father in heaven are perfect, including himself in the Father's perfection, which you could not say in Jerusalem, he said, be you therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect because he had not yet atoned for this world's transgressions. So, perfection is relevant. There are just men made perfect on a celestial level. Then there are translated beings who are perfect on that level. And then there was Christ, who is perfect now on the Father's level. So, kingdom hopping, no, but if you try it, you'll end up lower <laughs> if you try to take a shortcut. But it, it really is a rebirth, and you know it, as Paul says, you cannot be saved in ignorance. Well, you can't be exalted in ignorance either. You'll know it when you're exalted, because Christ has manifested himself to you sufficiently that you know that, to the degree that you're worthy of at the time. And the same as you can know that you've received a remission of your sins, the Holy Spirit testifies to you that you're innocent from your, from your guilt. You may not have expiated all your iniquities, because there is a difference between sin and iniquity. We discussed that last time. There is generational, you know, dysfunctional patterns that you've inherited, which are iniquities of the fathers and the heads of the children, that if you take ownership of them and expiate them <clears throat> through taking upon yourself those curses and wading through them, eventually you're cleansed, perfected, and exalted on that spiritual level. Then you're reborn in his image and likeness. That is his image and likeness. That's the level Adam and Eve were certainly on, who were created in his image and likeness. And they had a previous mortality. That's in the early church records. Wilfred Woodruff's journal, in fact. A diary. Okay, so let's... I mean, we can go further into this, but some things you just have to come to yourself. You have to learn them yourself and have the Holy Spirit guide you to the understanding of these things. King David is a good example of that happening. Because Joseph Smith said in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith that King David never did attain the spirit and power of Elijah, which is the level of translated beings. DNC 132 says he fell from his exaltation, which means he had his exaltation. And the next step was to become a translated being, which is what the spirit and power of Elijah is. So the only thing that could prevent him from doing so was 
was to murder, as the scriptures say, which he did, even unwittingly, so to speak, but that was because he let himself be led in to a slippery slope to where he was spiritually blinded to what he was doing. And when the prophet Nathan confronted him with it, he finally got it, and he had done it. But he was, as it were, in an altered state, not quite knowing that he had done it. didn't realize it. And that can happen when you yield to temptation, as he did with Bathsheba. And then he repented and sackcloth and ashes. And it says the scriptures say that God forgave him. Which means that if he forgave him through as much repentance and considering all his previous good works, which he did for the Lord, that he attained a saved state, but not an exalted state. Not his previously exalted state. But it, again, it does not say that anywhere that he cannot eventually again attain that exalted state. Gain it back. It doesn't say that anywhere. It just leaves it hanging. And that is also something we need to consider. And I'll leave it hanging there too. <laughs> so, it's very symbolic. Speaking of the seeds of death and it's implanted in you, you say. And it's symbolic. Well, I think just as, the same as the truth is implanted in you, and so and the consciousness of your eternal life, when people hear the gospel who are already in a good place, they immediately respond to it, right? It's like it's encoded in their genes. It's genetically encoded as sons and daughters of God. But the alternative also is because in all of God's covenants and dealings with humankind, it's always on the one hand and on the other, on the one hand and on the other. So I believe that as a man cannot be saved in ignorance or exalted in ignorance, so he can't be damned in ignorance either. You choose which seed you're going to receive. Yeah. If it's a good seed, yes, good fruits. And if it's a bad seed, you'll know it too from the evil fruits. Very good. Thank you for that insight. Is the, is the degree of the descent phase according to the capacity of the spirit? Or, or is the spirit capable of, it, of all of it? Basically, every spirit, yeah. I would, say, I would say that, judging from what I see, um, inherently we're all capable, we all start off in the same place. I would refer you to Alma, chapters 12 and 13, right? Which basically say we all start off in the same place at some point in time. But then the book of Abraham tells you that there are already different degrees of spirits coming to this earth on different levels. And that is because uh, some come to earth to, because they have premortal callings to do this particular thing, as Spencer does and others on that level, and then there are others who come to earth to accomplish this amount of progression in this, in this area of their lives, like the near-death experience of that um, born-again believer that I mentioned once in, in my class, who ended up um, on the street with other born-again believers. And the Lord said to him, you're never born to be more than this at least not on that mortality. And I would be utterly bored in a place like that. I would think that was hell on earth, hell in heaven. And of course, heaven can't be hell. So. so I think it depends a lot on our progression to the point before we actually come to the earth. And those on higher spiritual levels like Nephi who see the Lord in their youth, and Isaiah, and Nephi's brother Jacob, what gave them that privilege to see the Lord in their youth? They had hardly done anything in life basically. They had been good, they had been obedient as much as they could, but when you consider what it takes to see the Lord and to attain that exalted status, that's a whole lot. And they had that as a right given to them because they had advanced to that degree before they came here. That's why Paul says of, of 
covenant people, his people whom he foreknew. He knew them beforehand, and to know them is to make sure you're calling election. To know is, Adam knew his wife Eve, and so forth. To know is a covenant term that means that the, the Father has made sure his covenant with you. And if he knew them before, then they were on that level before. They can still fall, and they do. And possibly regain it again, but yeah, we come here on different levels so we can minister to each other, those higher to lift up those lower, and those on a high level already to being lifted up to an even higher level by those ministering from above. Question from the webcast. Um, you can see that in chapter uh, 37, where people on basically a Jacob-Israel level go through their descent phase of the Assyrian alliance uh, surrounding them, 185,000, and putting them to the test where they're going to obey their king, keep the king's law, and the king is going to keep God's law, and they do. The people keep the king's law, the king keeps God's law, which is the formula for, for God's protection. It's the covenant formula under the terms of the Davidic covenant. Under the Sinai covenant, all the people across the board needed to be keep God's law in order to gain his direct protection. The angel of the Lord goes out and slays 185,000, but the exaltation then is very evident, and I would say that is the born-again moment for them, and that is why you see so many psalm, psalms of salvation, or songs of salvation in the book of Isaiah. That is the exaltation. When you're born again, you receive that Holy Spirit endowment, and your spontaneous reaction is to praise God and thank Him, and um, exalt, honor Him in your prayers and in your... This book is uh, when I was quoting from Windows and the Prophet of Isaiah. It, it just barely came out. It's a book of study tools for understanding Isaiah. The previous last one is the Apocalyptic Commentary of Isaiah. It came out last year, and um, or actually the end of the year before. And uh, my books are on all of my books are on JosephAndJudah.com, and my Isaiah books are on IsaiahProphecy.com, and my website. Isaiah Explained, or our website, the Hebraeus Foundation's website, Isaiah Explained is being newly rebuilt and will be up in about a week or so. And it'll also have these books listed. So with the new Isaiah Explained site, we'll have a lot of material that, you can, that is also in these books. So, and also has ebooks versions of all these books on these websites. josephandjuda.com, isaiahprophecy.com, IsaiahExplained.com, and free weekly emails have been delayed as we're switching over to these sites on IsaiahReport.com. You can register there and then receive notifications of everything that's going on, of classes and so forth, webcasts. That's IsaiahReport.com. And soon there will be another website called IsaiahIllustrated.com, and that will have the graphics and patterns of Isaiah's literary structures. I'll sit out for you. Uh, yes, right. Um, that's what first alerted me to the new name idea in the book of Isaiah. Now, the servant is given a new name, and we don't know what it is because new names on higher levels are not revealed. The translated beings or the elect are given new names later on in the book of Isaiah, and the names of the, their enemies who oppress them, their names are erased from the book of life. In contrast, chapter 65, I believe, and um, the name Zion Jerusalem was first alerted me to the idea that 
There are different spiritual categories here. Why would he call God's people Jacob sometimes and Israel another time, or in parallel, Jacob, Israel, and another time in parallel, Zion or Jerusalem? So I simply started noticing what it said about each category, which each uh, time those names popped up and came to the conclusion that, hey, this is a name of a higher category in this category. And from then on, I kept looking and saw that those who are defined as sons and servants are in a higher category still, and uh, so forth. Uh, as I was telling somebody earlier, there seem to be more precepts of men out there than there are truths of God. Uh, read Second Nephi 28, and you'll read all about it, how it can regress. Well, I would suspect so that ultimately they are, because they are withdrawn from God's light and from his presence. So where does that go? Eventually, if you're... If you cut off from light even now, as phys in our physical bodies, you pretty soon start to wither, a plant withers, an animal. And so if you cut off from his presence forever, doomed to all eternity, eventually you'll wither, wither more and more and more. And you'll see that in Spencer's book, where these beings, they, they look like humanoids, but they are not even, they can transform them, and they don't look, certainly not in his image and likeness. And these are the fallen ones, fell with Lucifer. So just take it from there. I have a policy in my lessons if you can't show it, don't say it. So some things we can assume, we can draw analogies, right? But we can't, scriptures don't outright say them. So we simply have to assume things based on the evidence that we do have. And assuming that darkness is where they dwell and we dwell in the light and grow from the light, from light to light, they go from darkness to darkness, and eventually, where does that go? You know, to death, ultimately. I, I sometimes think there are pre more precepts of men than there are truths of God. Out there, in our, in our community, yes. But I don't say that. I, I, sometimes I think that, because I'm dealing with so many. This is the second time you've asked a very sensitive question. <laughs> well... <laughs> Um, would you put a tag on him so that he... Uh, so, well, I don't like to go there. But where I, how does my opinion, or do I differ from the church on things? I can't say that. I, I, I believe that the church believes what the scriptures say. And if those who are diligently members of the church will know the scriptures and understand them correctly, but if there are some in the church teaching things that are contrary to the scriptures, as there are, even in leadership positions, even in places where it ought not to be, things that simply disagree with the scriptures, then it's not that I disagree with the church, it's this I disagree with them. So that's where I leave that. And somebody said to me once in Israel when I was working on a kibbutz, you should think 10 times before you say something like that. <laughs> so, so would you please think a couple of times anyway before you ask certain questions? All right, thank you. All right, we've got a few more minutes. Oh, you've, you've thought about it twice already? Can I elaborate on being valiant in the testimony of Jesus? Yes, thank you. Yeah, we'll be covering a lot of that in future lectures too. Well, in Isaiah, you have the Lord called the valiant one of Israel and also the holy one of Israel. And those are the two things that qualify for your celestial status. 
To be found in the testament of Jesus means, to me, it means to go all the way with loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, to the umpteenth degree. And that's also what charity is. Charity is the pure love of God, and it endureth forever. It doesn't mean to say necessarily that God loves us forever. It means that we love God forever. We reach a point where our love becomes an eternal love by living the terms of the covenant that he has given us. And from then on, nothing can shake us from it. And if you have charity for another person, it is on that level that you love that person, to the umpteenth degree. And when Moroni says of the Gentiles, he sees that, looking at our time, that the Gentiles don't have charity. And that's us, including the Ephraimites who've come through the Gentile lineages, compared to the house of Israel, the Jews, Lamanites, or Nephites, and ten tribes of today, the house of Israel has charity. And that charity, you'll notice it among Polynesians. I happen to be in a Polynesian ward, and I, I enjoy it every Sunday and during the week at the temple sessions, because the love that they have is tremendous. It cuts through everything. It's, there's no political correctness involved. There's no undercurrents. You know, what you see is what you get, and it's an undeviating love. It's pure love. There's no judgment calls. When you make friends with a Jewish person, it's an eternal love. They have charity, that kind of love. So being valued in the testimony of Jesus is all of that. It's having charity and exercising it wherever, whenever. And through that process, becoming more and more like God, becoming holy as He is. We're going to have a, the fifth lecture is going to be on the holiness of God. And we'll discuss a lot about holiness, the attribute, His divine attribute of holiness. Uh, next uh, Thursday will be on... Sodom and Gomorrah destruction, we're discussing some new versions of ancient events. And the following week, the fourth class will be on uh, the Syrian invasion of the Promised Land, including this land, the, alliance, the Syrian alliance invading this land. It's emulating God, because he says in one place in Isaiah chapter 13, his anger is not upon those souls, those holy ones and valiant ones, which tells you that they have a connection with the valiant one of Israel. It's showing if they're using him as their paradigm or model and acquiring his attributes. And people on a terrestrial level are not valiant. They may be from time to time, but not on that level consistently all the way through. It's a point that you reach where you're completely committed to serving God. And that's the level Spencer sees of those angels who receive their commissions directly from Christ. And... They have Christ as their head. They are led by Christ. They, whatever they do is what he would do in them or through them. That's what's defined by heart, might, mind, and strength, basically. Loving God. You know, when I, when I teach in the Polynesian Ward, I, I'm both an alternate gospel doctrine and high priest teacher, it's interesting to see how when you teach the truth of God, they don't just get it intellectually, they get it right here in their hearts. They may not even get it totally intellectually, but they certainly get it on the heart level. And it's refreshing. It's wonderful to see that. And it makes me think, well, we are lacking in that respect. Our hearts are not totally there with God. It's not about warm fuzzies. In fact, warm fuzzies are probably a 
detriment in a way to getting to this heart level. But when you get to the heart level, you know. It's the spontaneous calling of Abba, Father. And there's an immediate connection between you and Father. When you reach that point, that's the heart level. With your might, because all of your resources, which are your bodies, energies, and mental faculties, and talents, and everything you have, are going toward serving Him to the very best of your ability. And according to the circumstances that you're in, you couldn't be doing better. And um, if you're on a terrestrial level and you want to attain the next level, then you deepen your commitment so that He can arrange your circumstances in such a way that gives you an opportunity to serve on that greater level to where you really are spending all your energies full-time on serving Him. And that's the level Spencer and others reach in this end-time scenario. When that happens, when the end time happens, we're called to do amazing things and those who respond and give up everything else. Forget about it. We haven't reached that point yet, but we can be preparing for it by making ever greater commitments now and asking the Lord to lead us to higher things through our current experiences. And my experience is, when one door closes, another one opens. When that door closes, another one opens. You don't have to know everything all at once. Where are you going? I don't know where I'm going with this. It's not about me anyway. It's about His service. So why worry about that? It's, I'm quite content to be doing what I'm doing now. And I see another, I see another door opening because I'm getting married in April. And after being divorced for 17 years. And that's a door opening and I'll see what, where that leads. You know, I expect great things from that. And that's finally happened to me a blessing from on high, so to speak. And um, worshiping God with all your mind, I've discussed that in class before, that we have to be exercising our minds constantly in the direction of serving God, not getting distracted with mindless things. If you're mindless, if you're just kind of going on auto mode, then we're really not worshiping God with our minds, are we? Autopilot. We ought to be aware of everything around us at all times, so we don't sin in this degree, nor in that degree, nor in this thought or that action. Or, and exercising, you know, our minds in the study of scriptures and figuring things out. Searching the scriptures diligently is extremely important. It's part of worshiping God with our minds. And with that come the fruits of our labors, so to speak, and the blessings that come with that. When we do those things that keep His law, He comes through and helps us by giving us those insights that we need to take us further on. And what do we miss? Heart? The what? Strength, yeah. Well, strength is like might. And uh, as you get older, you begin to lack strength, you know. But you can compensate for that lack by gaining in spiritual strength. It's like a deaf person has other talent, or, you know, they begin to hear or sense through their other sensitivities they become more acute, and so according as your physical strength deteriorates, you can gain in other strengths. I think a person who is paraplegic, for example, can worship God with all their strength, strength of body, strength of mind, um, just as well as any of the rest of us. It's God who is the judge of these things, and, and He allows that person to work out their exaltation through that sequence to which they agreed before they came here because the entire plan works on free agency. So they must have agreed to it beforehand.
Well, let's move on a little bit. And then one more question. Would I elaborate on Isaiah chapter 6, um, on seeing with the eyes, hearing with the ears, understanding in the heart, and repenting and being healed? Yes, I would. <laughs> All right, so, so this, according to the scriptures, and um, we're going to have subsequent lectures that also talk about that. The thing that blinds us most in Isaiah are the idols of Babylon. And the idols in our culture are all the things that we just discussed, things that distract us here, there, and everywhere. Movies, television, games, gadgets, four-wheelers, you name it. All our pleasures, you know, recreational things. This whole culture is just immersed in idolatry. You go away and serve a mission in a third world country and you see how, what people can be happy with without all this stuff. And their hearts and minds are more pure than ours. You get it immediately. Because we're so inured with the trappings of Babylon. Like the Israelites, they love the flesh butts of Egypt. So, and we don't even know we're in it because we don't see it because it's, these things cause us to have spiritual blindness. So, becoming, seeing again and hearing again with our ears is part of the same process. Again, it goes back to purifying our lives and keeping ever higher laws and putting away the lesser laws. A lesser law would be going out on the town tonight, you know, having a great time and so forth. Well, what else could we do better? I mean, would Jesus go out on the town and have a great time with us? Would he? Well, no, he would be doing this, that, and the other. Well, why don't we then? So, put away the lesser laws, keep a higher law, with that comes greater insight. Like the Israelites that said at the foot of the mount, which you discussed in the last lesson, we will do and we will hear. We will do, and with, with the doing comes the understanding, comes the enlightenment. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand in their heart. The understanding of the heart comes with taking those steps and then re <laughs> repenting of our mistakes or repenting of the lesser laws we've kept. And then he can heal us. Healing is synonymous with salvation in the book of Isaiah in chapter 53. He pays the price of our salvation. And through his atonement, we are healed. Healing is through his taking upon our, himself our transgressions and relieving us of the burdens of punishment. And then through his atonement, we can also be healed of our iniquities through working with his grace and his Holy Spirit and with the ministering of angels in our lives. We can eventually overcome until eventually we are cleansed every whit of our iniquities, as it says in the Book of Mormon, that only those who were cleansed every whit of their iniquities could do miracles. And why don't we see miracles today? I mean, graphic miracles. Raising the dead, healing the sick like in visions of glory, which they then could do, because they were cleansed every whit of their iniquities. That's speaking of celestial beings. So we'll end it there. Thank you for coming tonight. God bless. This concludes Lecture 10, Ascending and Descending Spiritual Levels. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.